Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 192 for July 1st, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about ethics in archaeology with guest Dina Rivera. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Hello. Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone. Today, our guest is laser scanning 3D model building bioarchaeologist Dina Rivera. She is a recent graduate from the University of South Florida and one of the Register of Professional Archaeologists' newest members and interns. Focusing on digital identification of human remains, repatriation, and heritage preservation, she's currently working on social media outreach for this RPA encouraging participation and engagement with their archaeological ethics database, as well as encourage membership in the International Register for Archaeological Professionals. Welcome, Dina. Hi, thank you. That, that bio has a lot, uh, a lot in it, and uh, so maybe you want to pick out whatever you feel like is most important or what else you'd like the listeners to know about? I'm a bioarchaeologist. I, I, I work on human remains, and I'm trying to figure out a digital way for identifying them to help out law enforcement and to help out repatriation efforts like in lost cemeteries or in mass grave situations. Mm-hmm. But that's not what I'm doing this summer. No, you're working on the ethics database, right? Yes. Yeah, well, and I feel like reading your bio, you have like laser scanning and 3D model building along with bioarchaeology. And, and, you know, that's frightening confluence of ethical concerns, right? So, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Do you, do you want to talk about that at all? Um, well, just in working with human remains, there is a, an enormous amount of ethical concerns where you are having to worry about who these remains, quote unquote, belong to, what cultural groups do they go with, who should be handling them if they should be photographs. There are so many questions that are involved in using and being a respectful practice for handling in human remains. Sure. And that kind of ties in with the RPA's Archaeological Ethics Database, right? Yes. Tell us what it's about. At this moment, it's very much this uh, intern-driven repository for anything that has anything to do with archaeological ethics. And it includes uh, subjects like globalism or professionalism, commoditization of archaeology. It includes, you know, how cultural resource management should be best practiced, how to work within the community. Um, It has blog posts, articles, books, 
syllabi from classes all over the place. California has, has to be one of my hardest places to catalog because they have so many great classes regarding these really contentious issues in archaeology. You know, I, I confess that, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the register. I, I'm mm-hmm. an RPA and I've known about this database. And every time I look at it, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. But I, I'm not sure I've ever figured out a way of like really using it in my day to day job sort of process. I can see how that would be a difficult, especially in CRM archaeology, where you're very much the boots on the ground. And the database is very much more towards the theoretical or academic side of archaeology. However, it has resources for how to engage the public. It has resources on how to ethically participate with the community that you might be in. So if you are doing some prior research to a place you're about to go, it might have some information that might lead you in with a little bit of a a head in the right place or, you know, at least a little bit of foreknowledge that can help in your endeavors. Just to clarify, this is the joint database between RPA and CIFA, right? Yes, sir, this is. Yeah, so um, for North American listeners, CIFA is the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists. Mm-hmm. which is the RPA of the UK slash also they have a, I'm not sure if their ch- chapters is not probably the right word or joint. So there's like also a CIFA Germany, CIFA Deutschland. And I think there's a CIFA Australia now as well. I can't remember if they're special interest groups or something, but it's sort of the idea of professionalism going a bit cross-country, I guess. Mm-hmm. And this is the database that was launched, was it two or three years ago? What, what was the background to, to the database and it's the whole creation and everything? Um, it was headed up by uh, the Ethics Commission first intern, Patricia Marker. She's currently a PhD candidate. Forgive me, I don't know where, but she was the first intern and she set up the database, a very simple WordPress engine. It was openly uh, accessible globally. And um, the idea was to improve those sort of um, availability of these resources, availability of these articles and blogs in all in one place. So um, working with Kenneth Atchison, uh, Dr. Atchison, who is our, our CIFA part of our membership, he has helped me um, direct a lot of what he want out of this social media push, this enrollment, this uh, participation, and, and create more understanding on the ability of what you can do with a database. Stephen, earlier you were sort of mentioning how you might use it and stuff. And Tina, can you tell us a little bit? I've I've looked at, there's a, I'm probably not the best person to describe it, this, but there's like a browser, like you can browse topic sort of section of the website as well. So if you're, if you don't know where to start, isn't there a sort of a good starting place on the ethics website as well? 
admittedly, I find the interface a little less user-friendly, and I think that that was a choice that they made for what was available for ease of access and and such. Uh, WordPress engines are free, but there is a way that you can search it by keywords, search it by strings of threads. You can search by main topics. I did I did in my internship last year suggest that you know to 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 include include more advanced functions like being able to search by author by date, but that's not wasn't in the availability at that moment. Sure, I, I agree. I think it could be a lot easier to look if through it if you didn't know where to start. I think that then part of that will be using the social media to create the public outreach of people knowing it, and then they may be able to use it better. Right. Well, and, and I took a spin through it this morning to kind of refamiliarize myself with it. And like I say, I'm always like, wow, that this seems really cool. But uh, I, I found that like I was looking at it on my phone. So maybe there, there's like a mobile version formatting or something like that. But it seemed pretty simple to search for a topic. I, I just I just randomly selected racism because uh, Bill's uh, recent blog post has been in the forefront of my mind. Um, and and a lot of a lot of resources came up. I I don't know like how much uh, a person can you know refine it. If I was looking for something specific, or you know like I, I didn't really push the the boundaries of like it didn't give me exactly the article that I'm looking for because I was just kind of seeing what was there. I thought it was interesting that there were a lot of uh, blog posts in there. Yep, there there are a lot of blog posts as those seem to be the more cutting edge. Of, of the public opinion, what's happening right then and there. And it happened in a, a quicker means than getting it through a journal article, which has to go through a peer review process and such like that. And I do believe that I, I had shared uh, Bill's archaeology and racism article on the RPA website a couple of days ago, because Given my own position, given my own uh, experience in the days uh, that the interesting times that we're in, I feel that I could bring that sort of relevance and accountability to professional archaeology in that means that we can address these very, very sticky topics and they need to be addressed, even if it's going to be divisive, even if it's going to be uh, difficult. Sure. They're, they're important things to come talk about. The issue is going to be addressed, even if that way they address it is by doing nothing. Because so far what we've seen is, you know, for many years, people haven't really been doing very much. And then I, I have seen quite a bit of stuff happening specifically with, you know, California archaeology and uh, uh, the Society for Historical Archaeology, and especially stuff, you know, including tribal historic preservation offices. I mean, they're really behind a lot of the stuff that I was writing about as an example of how you can address discrimination with archaeology, basically by them taking it over themselves and doing what they can to handle as much in-house as possible. So in action or action, you know, either which way, something's going to end up happening. But I was looking at the uh, database. It's great that it's mostly blog posts because you're right, blogs are where the stuff is starting to come out. I mean, white papers you know, journals don't really want to publish white papers anymore. So blogs are the new white paper. And like in that world, you know, uh, 
having a database like this is, you know, great because you can search through and you can kind of see the most recent stuff that's going on and who's been writing it and then, you know, use that as a starting point. I guess the, the question I I was I wanted to ask is, you know, is this open source? Can we all add to it? Or, you know, how, how are you compiling all these uh, blog posts? Every summer we've had an intern that has basically Googled the internet, scroll through the internet, look through all of anthropology programs and finding anything of most recent value that has any anything along the lines of uh, the topics. And each intern adds their topics and adds their own, shapes the database in their own sort of way. So Patricia began it with her, her vision. The next intern, he took it over for his summer and added his topics that were important to his field. And when I brought it in, I, I added things like repatriation, globalism, nationalism, things that were pertinent to 2019. And this year they asked me to come back to run their social media. Cool. I think an interesting thing here is like, how do you get this position? We talked about your uh, professional interests have a lot to do with ethical considerations and stuff, but did, did you have specific training in ethics that, you know, got you into this position or, you know, did, did the RPA provide some sort of training as to what to look for or, you know, what to consider? Actually, no. When I started grad school, I was fully expecting to be a CRM archaeologist and um, I was hit by a drunk driver and so spent most of my grad school in doctor's offices and in therapy and finished this year with this more theoretical perspective on archaeology as, as field work and anything more too extraneous became out of my reach. So I ended up working on digital things, laser scanning, 3D model building, and facial recognition programs for skeletal remains that also brought me into uh, the ethical considerations of all of those fields. Then I, at the SAAs 2019, I presented on the ethical engagement of science and social media. And that was, uh, I believe, what helped the, the Ethics Commission make their consideration for me. I applied for it. The RPA sent an email uh, proposal out for it, a request for proposals, and uh, applied and got it uh, for last year and, and this year. Oh, wow. Um, I'm glad you're okay. And uh, yeah. congratulations on getting it. Okay. Boy, oh, wow. boy. It's quite a story. Yeah, what a, a change in events. So you say that you feel like your discussions about ethical use at the SAA help. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about the SAA. They've got a lot of stuff on their plates. As far as their involvement in the database, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what they're trying to do. Their involvement in the database as of last year is that we would um, create ethic bowls, uh, those scenarios for ethic bowls. We would create those. Uh, the interns would write them and they would select from a pool of however many that have been written. Otherwise, I believe last year after their difficulties in addressing the issues of sexual predators in their midst, which is, again, a very sticky ethical subject. And yeah. uh, it's also sad that it's a long term problem, too. It's also sad that 
it, it exists, but also that in a year it's like they're waffling on what to do about it. But so, so I, that was really the, the question, like, is this part of their attempt to try and uh, remedy the situation among the SAA? As as far as I know, no, there is no real assist, uh, association between their fumbling of that situation, which I have plenty of my own choice uh, opinions about. But I think the RPA Ethics Commission is completely separate as it had uh, the inception was, I think, a couple of years before their their gaffe. We're kind of out of time on, on this segment, so we're going to pick this right back up for the second segment. Back with you in a moment. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code crmark you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. I, I just kind of want to jump in. I don't know that this is necessarily completely relevant or a logical leap there, but one of the things when we started talking about like the ethical database and, and just archaeological ethics in general, that one of the things that really came to my mind uh, before we started recording is that there's been a lot of ethical considerations pop up in the past couple of years, both the sexual harassment ethics of the SAAs last year, then carried over into early this year, and then you know promptly uh, turning into the racial ethics that we've all been talking about with the Black Lives Matter movement and all of this. And and then you know, it carries forward even more into how, as archaeologists, we work with, you know, minority populations and, and stuff like that. And, and it seems like, you know, because uh, looking over um, the ethical guidelines and, and, and roles in these organizations like the RPA and the SAA, and I presume SHA and, and AAAs and, and, you know, all the organizations, is that up until this point, they've been largely reactive. Like, you're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. You know, how do you address uh, when certain things occur? Uh, whereas now, um, you know, particularly with, you know, Bill's uh, blog post is, is um, really uh, fresh in the mind. Uh, 
it, it's a lot more not just being reactive, but being proactively ethical. You know, in, in case of Bill's post, uh, you know, uh, racially, and and but also, you know, we, we've come to see that the the reactive and uh, approach of the SAA really failed us or really failed the SAA, you know, at, at that meeting. So I'm going to like put that out there and, and let you guys talk about it. Cause I think it's a uh, kind of an interesting um, start, starting point and particularly thinking about how at that point, like a database, like um, the one that Dina's uh, working on is, is a lot more important. I, I have to agree with you in the in the the um, the way that this affects the realm of of ethics, ethical practice, ethical practicum in in society. And I think as archaeologists, we should be asking these questions of ourselves: that do I really know more than the community that I'm going into? Do I really need to be taking these? Uh, particular resources of information over other resources of information. And that all weighs into the systemic problems of who's get to say what in what arena. And here you are speaking truth to power in ways that uh, would not be acceptable uh, many years. I would say, you know, 10 years ago, would you even say a decade ago, would you be able to do these sort of uh, conversations and to you make pave these ways for people to be proactive. You make this possible for us to connect the resources, connect the people and the the know how in order to be proactive. Well, I, I, th- I think yeah, but I I feel like the database enables us, like adds volume to the sort of stuff that you know we've been saying. Correct. Yeah, the database also. Um gives me a reason to blog again (laughs) just writing articles you know well i mean we're living through like a complicated thing where there's big time change happening and it's been happening for a long time and you know there's environmental change which of course archaeologists have been working on for a long time but then that connects to like social and economic change and when it comes to archaeology there's really kind of two things going on there's you know the societal change and then archaeology's reaction so uh archaeology's like you know, a, a step or two behind big time things that are ended up happening where, you know, all of a sudden there's all these rules on equity and inclusion and stuff that happened a few decades ago. And then universities start pushing like real hard for this to happen. And, you know, it's kind of part of the uh, equal opportunity legislation of the United States. And so then you kind of see like universities uh, make some kind of steps towards changing these kind of things. But government and in CRM, you don't really see it because these entire structures are developed where it's like way more likely for someone white to finish the entire, you know, obstacle course of education and everything to be an archaeologist. So when you get to that kind of like, well, we hire the best fit or the best candidate, well, all the people who end up being best fit and best candidate just by the way the entire thing is set up end up being white. And so, you know, you have the CRM companies that if there was someone who ended up being that best fit in quotation marks, they would definitely take them. But, you know, our entire society set up so it's less, less likely for someone Hispanic, someone black, someone native to be that best fit. So archaeology's reaction is kind of like behind the thing, like, you know, uh, wait, us too? Like, wait a minute, we're part of the problem too? Well, we didn't know that. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of crazy that you didn't know it. But by the way, we're telling you that you didn't know that. And then the other thing that's happening is kind of, 
you know, non-white groups' reaction uh, to societal change and how that matters for archaeology is just straight up setting up your own organization and then just mm -hmm. not even, like, worrying about, you know, after 50-something years of the National Historic Preservation Act, just set up your own neighborhood group and try to push for historic preservation in Tulsa because no one thought about that in more than 100 years of major events to even make any kind of, like, historic uh, landmark or any kind of landscape to commemorate what used to be here or, you know, black archaeologists just being sick and setting up their own society, tribal groups, you know, through all the different stuff that needs to happen, getting to the point where they have several tribal members that have all these qualifications and masters is and all that stuff. They can just do the tribal historic preservation work and hiring white archaeology companies to do the work under their own, like, you know, rules and overview. Right. So, that's that's kind of non-white people's response like well nothing ever ended up happening so we're just going to do it ourselves and and mm -hmm. then behind that then archaeology's looking like well wait that's great i can't believe you did that like so anyway can i hang out with you and it's like i don't know man the the car's kind of full like we, we <laughs> only made one for us to fit in and i don't really know what else to say because for the longest time we tried to fit in yours and we never really fit in and so archaeology once again is like one or two steps behind and what i would really hope through all this is that they see through this that like Yes, there are folks we can hire. There are people that we can mentor. They are actually out there. And rather than like, you know, having some kind of guilt or feeling sorry or then sending the hopes and prayers email that every Southwest Airlines, Macy's and everybody's sending me these things like, oh, they really love Black Lives Matters, by the way, you know, you know, 20 percent off a flight to Phoenix. Like rather than doing that kind of stuff, actually, like think about it and think about the different steps that they can do in their own community to maybe make one tiny step. Like it's, it, I'm not even asking for people to be out there doing major life risking things. The tiniest step, because if the tiniest step happens altogether, we can see some real change. But right now I haven't even really seen the tiniest step. I, I would just like to comment. I, archaeology now is being rea uh, reactive, but archaeology was at one point proactive, easily over... 20 years ago. So like the SAA, the um, Principles of Archaeological Ethics, that was set up, uh, I am not going to get the time right, but I'm pretty sure 1990s. It was at least around by the early 2000s. Yeah, I want to say it was the early 90s and it was somehow related to uh, the push NAGPRA. But I'm just guessing. Uh, I, feel, I feel like that's the case, right? There was a couple of things that happened. Uh, the 19, it was, I think, either 89 or 1990, there was a big workshop. So people who are listening, these are all fuzzy and I'm probably wrong on it, but I believe it was a BLM or National <laughs> Parks did a big workshop and they they realized that something like 80% of the sites on national land had already been looted. That was sort of a wake-up call. Um, I want to say that was like... 88, 89, but it could have been like early 90s with NAGPRA as well. And there was kind of a push. And I mean, that was sort of revolutionary if you think about 1990s and a professional sort of still very academic. And I'd have to say SAA is still pretty academic focused um, mm -hmm. society to actually like put together um, ethical statements and things like that was pretty revolutionary. It's just that like they started that process, made some statements, 
no one's ever really followed them or done much with them. And actually now they've, uh, did any of you guys fill out that survey from maybe, well, we're on COVID time. So I want to say it was like a month ago, but it could have been like <laughs> two years ago, ago or yeah. four days ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, but there was a, a survey that went out from one of the working groups or committees at SAA to sort of figure out about like revising you know, the archaeology principles and ethics and the SAA's one. And I think there has been like, I mean, we, gosh, archaeology started out well ahead of the the curve on these things. And, and there was like the, the Zeta report. So like 1994, they were gathering this data and, and realizing that archaeology was like ridiculously white. <laughs> and, we, you know, that is... 25 years ago that I mean you know publication yeah. came slightly later but that's that's it um, and yeah I don't know I, I feel like it's a it's now that they're being now we're being reactive archaeology as a whole sector except for like quite a few as Bill has pointed out quite a few people have actually sort of gone and been quite proactive mm-hmm. leaving behind many of the large organizations and structures that currently exist and doing it on their own. Um, I don't know. I, there was at one point that we, we were proactive, but it just got bogged down. And I think this is a huge problem with ethics is like everyone wants to have a standard of ethics as long as it doesn't like require them to do anything. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's where the buck stops there with all those ethics statements because they were created and it came after years and years of Native people pushing for their own repatriation of their own artifacts that were on display at museums and all kinds of crazy stuff happening to their things where they can't even actually see them, right? And stuff that we collected for over 100 years. So they want their stuff back. And, and finally, after a long, long, long battle, they get Nagra. And then right after that, all of a sudden, you start to see these ethics statements. But it was still, you know, majoritively white archaeologists making these rules for themselves. And then we see how that all ended up happening 25 years. There was no, like, there was nothing built into force engagement with non-white people. There was nothing that was, that was to get non-white people on these boards and stuff, because we can still hide behind PhDs and masters and all this other stuff and keep these walls up so that we don't have to actually talk to normal humans that have to live with, you know, our decisions. Right. So like, yeah, there's these great ethic statements, and if we followed them, then we would actually see archaeology that reflects the demographics of the places we work in. You know, archaeologists working in Nigeria, the people that at those conferences actually reflecting the demographics of that country, the people working in the United States reflecting those demographics, but we haven't seen that, and it's been a whole generation. I'm going to slightly push back on one of the things you said, Bill. Um, and that you're like, you know, if people followed the ethic statements, but I think I kind of find actually most of those ethic statements to be quite weak. Like if any of you, like if there's any ethics, you know, someone, anyone, any of our listeners are, are putting together an ethics, ethics statement for your organization, your, your company, you know, yourself. If, if your ethics includes something that says like, follow the local laws, it's not an ethics statement. It, it's like a, a best practice statement possibly there. 
maybe that might, I mean, it's like the weakest best practice statement is like, yeah, follow the rules. Um, because like <laughs> ethics, ethics is not law and ethics are two different things. What's legal and what's ethical are, are very, very different things. And people try to push our laws to be ethical, but it's a struggle and it's constantly changing. And I think any ethics statement needs to be aspirational. So like you shouldn't be saying follow the local laws. Your ethical statement should be you should be changing the local laws to meet this standard. And so like, yeah, cause I, I, I don't know. Even if we had – everyone had followed like the essays, principles of ethics from – the late 1990s, I'm not sure if we'd be much better. There's, there's no, um, there's no principle about like diversity. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of the ones that are there mm-hmm. are pretty weak. It's something like, uh, there's one I really hate where it's like, Oh, if you haven't, pub- pu- you should, you have a duty to publish your work, but you know, you have like 10 years to do it. And it's like, yeah, man, if, if you haven't, if you haven't got it done in 10 years, yeah, it's just, you should, you should be doing it much, much sooner than that. Um, even interim reports, I mean, big projects in CRM, we put out interim reports much, uh, much more rapid pace than like every 10 years. And I don't know. It's just, I think we started out somewhere good, but we really need to actually, like if we're going to have ethics statements, we actually need to have ethics statements and not sort of wishy-washy, hey guys, like let's follow the rules and not try to make waves statements is what they yeah. usually tend to be. This is a really good point. And I think that in, in the way that having this database for the RPA uh, addresses that is that by including all of these ethics statements from several places, the AIAs, the SAAs, the, all the acronyms, the alphabet soups, you can pick and choose which ones are better. You can you can critique others. You can pick the ones that would be aspirational. And I have to agree that they are, a lot of them are very um, mild-languaged. They have a lot of uh, trying to appeal to as many people as possible, which is not exactly what you want to do with ethics because ethics evolve just like society evolves. And you can't legislate ethics. It's not law. It's um, ethics are the moral code of the group of the people that you're with. And then, and like you said, if you're going into a foreign area to do your work, your ethics should be to help them better themselves. And it may not necessarily be, you know, follow the law, respect the law of the land. If that's the case, then I'm in trouble. Well, on that note, let's uh, wrap up this segment and uh, pick it back up for the third segment. Back in a moment. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're recording with our guest, Dina Rivera, who is the intern basically in charge of or working with the Archaeological Ethics Database for the uh, Register of Professional Archaeologists, an organization I can't remember the name of, even though I'm a member. And, and we're having a very interesting conversation about ethics. We were discussing between the segments, basically like this third segment, we got, I don't know, 15 minutes to go. How do we leverage all this into moving forward? So, yeah, we were discussing this a bit in the back channel, and uh, Bill had basically just said, you know, there's going to be a, a lot of articles about racism and harassment, and there's going to be a lot of – we can already see it. How many corporate social media accounts have put out statements about Black Lives Matter in the last couple of weeks – all sorts of stuff. So there's, there's going to be a big push and stuff. But Bill's concern was, is it just going to be the, a bunch of push and like no follow through? And I have a, a slight rant on that in that when people are sort of considering the ethics of trying to do work around these issues, so around these issues of racism and around the issues of harassment. Um, and I mean, this, this is a this covers everything, you know, around issues of, say, uh, human remains and repatriation and things like that. I'll, I'll probably give a, a little bit of a story that I think basically really well encompasses it, is that here in, here in Scotland, um, a local museum department, I guess you could call it, it was thinking about doing something around Black people in Scotland and uh, putting together, you know, some sort of museum exhibition and things like that. And my wife, as the only black person in their uh, entire department, was asked, you know, oh, you know, they, 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 you know, her opinion on this stuff. And they were, they were talking about how they, they, you know, they want to do something to engage the local communities, the black communities. And they're like, yeah, yeah, and we'll do this uh, big exhibition on like slavery and stuff. And, and I feel like that's going to be what's going to happen with a lot of this push on like ethics, people are gonna be like, Oh yes, yes. You know, we should do all these things about that. But my voice response was like, uh, like, like black people don't need to be reminded about slavery. Like, like they're, they're pretty good on that point. Like when they were thinking about it, they were thinking about putting together an exhibition for white people. Uh, Cause white people need to hear about slavery, not, not black people. And my wife was actually saying like, you know, actually, if you want to put together an exhibition, why don't you do an exhibition celebrating culture instead of um, focusing on an aspect that is quite negative. And um, I think that is possibly what's going to actually happen a lot. I hope it doesn't, but I suddenly suspect that like over the next couple of years, there's suddenly going to be a massive push for like, Ooh, the archaeology of slave quarters and, you know, the archaeology of plantations and all sorts of stuff like that, which 
is an important part of heritage and there's already archaeologists doing that, but it's focusing about like a lot of aspects. There's a lot more to like African-American culture in America than just slavery. And I, I just feel like we're going to end up with that. And similar to how we had the statements, you know, the ethics statements at the beginning of the 19 or the 2000s and in the 1990s, it's going to be a lot of statements, but I'm not sure if there's going to be follow through. I'd really hope that if people are thinking about how they're going to do follow through is actually to engage the communities that you're trying to help and see what they actually want to have done. I don't know. It'd be really great. I know there's a committee for the SAA working on it, but like for sexual harassment and stuff like that, like, man, it'd be great if they just gave it over to the people who are affected and let them tell us what they'd like to have happen and then do it. And like the same for say African-American archeologists. Well, rather than having the SAA handle it, just have that community handle it and then put the, you know, just endorse things that you feel like you can endorse, endorse, and then, you know, keep your hands out of it and just basically watch what's happening. Cause you know, what we're seeing, especially with doing CRM for so long, man, just, watching people have this checklist of whatever and walking across the desert and seeing all these ceramics and being like, Oh, this is from this phase and this is that. And here's the level of criteria and it matters X, Y, Z to this irrigation district. So, you know, we assessed 144 sites and here's this and here's that. And it's like, well, did anyone even talk about what this landscape means? Cause when I go out with native folks and, you know, elders from tribes and we survey the same land, I get a whole different story about what's going on there when native folks are out there doing the same exact CRM, uh, NHPA kind of compliance section 106, elders have a completely different interpretation of what's going on. And there's nothing that prevents us from having that interpretation go in there because it's the NHPA. So like the same end game of, you know, significance and stuff like that. Like, I mean, that's the way the rubric is set up, but having actual indigenous folks do the work rather than, you know, having it be just some company from God knows where. And the same thing, like like you were just saying, setting up these different groups and committees and all this stuff, I feel like it doesn't even actually, in fact, have to be archaeologists with some of these problems that we're facing. Because what we see now is that archaeologists are actually not equipped to handle a lot of these social problems that are going on. And so rather than trying to be the, the, you know, social worker and the politician and all that stuff, perhaps just align ourselves with existing movements and other groups that are actually already good at that and learn from them and then just like, you know, have their back, collaborate with them rather than trying to do it ourselves. I think that this is a really important thing to to focus on that com- community centric archaeology, just like you said, and to allow the elders to that their information that they provide is just as valid as whatever book information that we bring with us as archaeologists. And I feel like, you know, enrollment with the RPA is, is like unionizing of the archaeologist into an accountability that we can keep you all accountable. And that moving forward would be to create a, a, a grievance uh, a protocol for dealing with these ethical matters so that they can be enforced, so that we can just not have the very easy lip service of saying Black Lives Matter and uh, putting on your little uh, uh, black uh, profile picture that's 
and not really doing anything further, not just writing on anti-racism, but being actively anti-racist, not just writing on the indigenous communities, but allowing the indigenous communities to integrate with our practice and to, and it just would just make it more enriched. It, it enriches our work, I think, at best, you know, even when uh, CRMs are, are putting forth uh, m- more reports than, like you said, the white papers we had mentioned earlier, that those reports could potentially enrich other information later. And to add that into the database and to add those sort of means for accountability, I think, is an important way for moving us forward with ethics and ethics and archaeology. Well, that brings up an interesting point in my mind. Thinking about like ethics and, and um, being able to file, file grievances about ethics and stuff like that, like if we start taking a proactive approach that somehow bucks the 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 process as it's laid out in in you know like the code of federal federal regulations 36 cfr 800 that you know like there's a process right um if if we how we manipulate the status quo process and if we fail to do it that there could be grievances about not being proactive um ethically um, I don't. I might just be rambling here. Um, but mm-hmm. but like, how how would that even work? Like, how how would you be able to be like, you know, if if it wasn't an established process of doing doing the projects, how do how do we push that? How do we get that so like grievances can be a thing? Well, the RPA already has a grievance uh, system, but I think like it should uh, be able to encompass how um, society has changed to include uh, the voices of the people who are affected by these sort of things. So, I mean, that's something, a way that, that the RPA can definitely move forward and evolve with the time. I know that SAA had tried to do that at, at the 2019s, and um, they had uh, an unfortunate side effect, I believe, where they were trying to give voices to the people who were affected and ended up traumatizing the rest of the room. That sort of misstep is something that we can avoid by Uh, appreciating those sort of situations, appreciating the words of the people who were affected, like in the blogs, we put those into the database to include that so that we can eventually collate those uh, words into a codified research that has this at this time, this was digitally what was the impression of SAA ethics right at this very moment in time, like a snapshot. That's a good suggestion. I have a question, uh, you know, in the background, I've been searching through the database, but I think, you know, as someone who works with students that they're going to be the ones who are going to move this forward. And so I guess maybe my question is, you know, how can students really use this database to either fill in the gaps that they're not getting in college or uh, get, you know, some kind of information that they can use as career folks after they graduate? This is a great resource for students just for research purposes. If they are uh, assigned something, they can go to the database, put in the names, get get like like uh, you had done before with racism and get just a, a, a lot of different resources, whether they are the white papers or not. 
They can do that to include and uh, bolster their theoretical uh, parts to their to their research papers. You know their structure. It can help create a um, a sense of what was going on in archaeology at the time, as it's the there are a lot of papers that are going all the way back to. I think I I, I put in the oldest one I put in was sixty five. Some some very old. Um, anthropology papers, but to try and create a timeline, a, a phylogeny of archaeological thought that students would be accessible to and not just um, at this moment, because like you said, this would be very student driven. Hopefully in the future, future interns, future students that'll be participating will be able to include um, resources from around the world. A lot of our resources are kind of the northern global geocentric. So we're, you know, a lot of European, a lot of uh, American, not a lot of Middle Eastern, Asian, African. So hopefully in the future, as we get more influence, uh, this year they added two more interns that's going to add in like uh, information on the missing and, and uh, murdered ind- indigenous women, they're going to, they're going to shape it in their way. And they, every intern gets to shape the database in their own way so that it becomes uh, a constantly growing resource for students. It's just a really great one for so students. In, in doing that in with everybody putting in their own thing, do you uh, do some sort of metadata about that, about like what your strategy or thinking is? Are, are you guys keeping, you know, maybe a journal? of uh, what your thoughts are about what needs to get added? Uh, yeah, as, uh, every um, every intern, we're keeping a track of all of our edits. Um, since mine is mostly social media, I am keeping track of all of my tweets, retweets, uh, any kind of information I'm putting out, I keep a long uh, record of. And at the end, I will turn in a report. And a matter of fact, that's what I had used for my... Um, my thesis is that I turned in the report and some theoretical musings on accessibility and uh, uh, the information database and internet information um, availability. Cool. So we're running running out of time, um, and, and this is a really great <laughs> topic. We've had a lot of fun, and I hope you can come back, and we can talk more about various fiery ethical stuff. But I have one final question. <laughs> so... As the person who like logs things into this database, are you going to uh, bookmark this episode? Actually, <laughs> actually, this year, this year, I'm not at logging things into the database. Oh, okay. I'm just, I'm just going to plug myself on the social media. You'll definitely see it plugged on on the RPA Twitter. Cool. Cool. Thanks, Thank guys. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want Thanks to know about. Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. 
Goodbye. Bye. Bye. And this is where we wait for the <laughs> dog. <laughs> <laughs> this one might break uh, records yeah well it's not even Chris so like <laughs> like the rest of us don't care <laughs> Chris will care when he hears this he'll be like why was that recording 37 minutes long reasons mm-hmm. pretty much Doug <laughs> starting to panic now <laughs> Doug's flatlined. As long as he's not grayed out. Is he waiting until the last second so this is exactly 20 minutes long? Could be, except Chris is just going to clip it, so. 37 minutes? Oh, God. Do it. Help us. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> I really hope Chris no. leaves in like your guys' commentary. That would be that'd be hilarious if it's just like a good two minutes of that. I was like, this is gonna be the one day that somehow the transatlantic cable breaks and like we lose <laughs> Doug fully and we never get closure. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.